There are worse things I could do Than go with a boy or two Even though the neighborhood thinks I'm trashy and no good I suppose it could be true But there are worse things I could do I could flirt with all the guys Smile at them and bat my eyes Press against them when we dance Make them think they stand a chance Then refuse to see it through That's the thing I never do this week on Broadway for Sunday, October 21st, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So the three of us got a chance to get down to the Roundabout Theater Company's Laura Pell's Theater to see Appalachia. So, Peter, why don't you start us off with this play? Well, the thing that occurred to me more than anything else in this fitfully interesting and often effective play is the fact that there were things that didn't make sense. Um, do you know that joke that starts out, how many people does it take to change a light bulb? You know, there's usually yeah. an ethnic mm-hmm. group or, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of occupation. Um, well, in this play, the question the theater goers are entitled to ask is, how much time does it take to change a light bulb? Um, a few seconds, right? And, and yet, when Kristen, who's played by Stocker Channing, sends out her grown son, Peter, to perform that task. He's gone for an inordinate length of time. And uh, the reason, of course, is that playwright Alexi K. Campbell needs him to so that Kristen can have a conversation with Peter's girlfriend, Trudy, uh, if indeed it, uh, if they didn't have that time, that we wouldn't be able to see that there's conflict between these two women. Now, um, I wish that there could have been something else, and I'm surprised that the playwright didn't think of something else to use as, uh, you know, fix a faucet or something like that, but um, a light bulb doesn't take that long to change. So um, that's one of the problems that comes up. And there are a few others like that that are really quite annoying. What occurred to me was like when you're eating a, a delicious lobster bisque and it's really great and then you run into a tiny speck of a shell, um, that's what happens in this play. You, you run into these little shells that drive you crazy saying um, that really wouldn't happen. Um, she has – Kristen is a, a 60s activist. I mean she's – the play takes place in 2009. But um, she was uh, certainly there on the front uh, protesting the Vietnam War. She might be a communist. Uh, there's a picture of Karl Marx hanging in her bathroom, we're told. So all those things indicate that she was um, growing up in that era and certainly uh, took to the causes of that era. And um, – 
She's written a book, and her two sons are very angry that they're not mentioned in the book. She's an art historian. I don't know if kids really should be upset if they're not mentioned in a book that deals with art history. So I think that's kind of odd. Even if they said you didn't put us in the acknowledgments, um, I'd, I'd be all right there. But they really seem to be upset that they're not in the book. Um, there's also a great deal about the fact that the kids were taken away from her because um, she was, I guess, an unfit mother, according to the father. And it seemed that the unfitness came from the fact that she worked all the time. Well, uh, all right. You know, I mean, I, I, I have questions about that, too. I'm not sure that that's enough, really. It isn't really dealt dealt in depth with what the problems were. Uh, did she not feed them? Uh, was she not there to put them to bed? I don't know what it was, you know, but but it really is established that the, the husband took them away. And um, under those circumstances, since they say they saw her only on holidays and things like that, I, I don't know why they would think that they would be in the book because they weren't really a part of her life. Now, you could say, well, this was her chance to make amends and put them in the book, but this isn't really discussed. However, 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 there's some marvelous pieces of indirect writing that really deserve to be given credit for. And I, for example, um, her son, Simon, has a girlfriend uh, who shows up as well. And, um, and she... It comes without Simon. So you get the impression that Simon doesn't want to come. Uh, he's coming later, we hear. You know, uh, Claire is the name of the um, the girlfriend. And Claire goes into this oration about, wasn't it charming or sweet um, how the radicals of the 60s did these things? And she makes it sound very trivial. Now, in most plays, what would happen here is that uh, the person uh, being trivialized would attack on that issue. But uh, what happens here, which is, I think, more effective, is that Christian goes into a speech about how can you not bring Simon? What's the story? It was your responsibility to bring him. So she's getting out her hostility, but she's not getting it out on the issue that was just given because she doesn't want to dignify it by um, dealing with it. So I think that's a very good piece of writing. I like mm -hmm. that quite a bit. Um, so that um, struck me as extraordinarily good. Another problem, though, is something truly disastrous happens at the dinner. I'm not going to say what it is, but truly disastrous. And um, let's say that there's uh, a perpetrator and a victim. I don't want to be more specific to give too much away because this play is going to be running for a while. The next morning, it's as if nothing happened, that the victim um, isn't still angry and the perpetrator doesn't feel guilty. There's none of that, and I'm very surprised that there aren't hard feelings that are held over because, believe me, what happens at dinner is a very costly mistake. And um, I think it should happen um, that we should ha have that certainly dealt with in detail. Um, Kristen's also very good in trivializing uh, what Claire does for a living. She's a soap opera star, and believe me, um, Claire thinks that she's the sun and the moon. Um, she has a great lack of self-awareness and a great need to be important. So that's kind of interesting, too. Now, Stalker Channing. Okay, I, I have to tell you, I haven't seen Stalker Channing perform since 1966 when she was appearing at theaters at Harvard University and what was then Radcliffe College. I saw her do classic comedies, Arms and the Man. That was the first time I ever saw her. Ancient dramas, Every Man. 
Theater of the Absurd, The Lesson. That was the second time I saw it. And new musicals, one called Peace that was so terrific. Also starring Steve Kaplan, who's now Steve Hannon, who was um, Gus the Theater Cat and Cats in the original uh, Broadway production, got a Tony nomination out of it. They were really the Lunt and Fontan of um, those Harvard and Radcliffe theaters. And um, so I've never seen a give a performance that was less than impressive. And that 52-year streak continues here. I love the way her face shows heartbreak. And in so many different ways and I will say that the playwright gives her plenty of chances to show heartbreak all night long and yet that face can really become steely when it needs to I mean she can really be a tough lady um, so so little things here and there I, I have to uh, credit you Dancy uh, for playing Peter and for playing Simon they never appear at the same time and it's the best compliment you can give an actor under these circumstances is boy, you wouldn't even know that the, it was the same actor playing the role. And I thought that was really great. Um, so uh, I think the cast is really quite good um, indeed. And we also have um, John Tillinger, um, more chummily known as Joey Tillinger, uh, who's a director, of course, of great renown, and yet he makes a rare stage appearance. And uh, he's the gay friend who comes out with many pithy quips and uh, some diffuse the situation and some add a ton of gasoline to them. But <clears throat> he he delivers them so well, you really, really wish that uh, he um, had more to do. Uh, it's a very fine performance. So, uh, so uh, and, and by the way, the title, um, Trudy makes the point that the word apologia is often used incorrectly. It's not apology in Latin, as so many of us have inferred, but it means a formal defense of one's opinion or conduct. And certainly Christian has ample opportunity to do that, to uh, defend what she's done, how she's lived her life. And I think she does it quite eloquently. So this is quite a, uh, a good play when it's good and maddening when it's not. All right, Michael, what do you think? Well, first of all, Peter mentioned Stocker Channing's face, and I'd like to start with that because um, I think there's good news there uh, that we have back the Stocker Channing's face <laughs> that we all knew and loved. I, uh, I have to say... Uh, that when she was in It's Only a Play a couple of seasons ago, I know that I and several other people uh, remarked that when she first came out on stage, she was unrecognizable. Uh, it seemed like whatever, that she had just recently had plastic surgery and or maybe Botox. Uh, and it did not go well uh, in the eyes of many theater goers. Uh, I have no no. What has happened since then? If it's if the work has settled, uh, perhaps if it was Botox, I know that that's temporary. Uh, so maybe she's kind of dialed back on that. Uh, but I uh, I think she looks great now. So that was a very happy surprise for me. I didn't know if uh, if the what had happened was permanent uh, in terms of what uh, the work that had been done on her face. And I, and I, you know, if this sounds superficial, uh, you know, to some people, <laughs> whatever, but I, I, I mean, I think it's important, especially since I, it really was clear in, in that other play that, uh, and, and some people even wrote about it uh, and spoke about it in various places that she was unrecognizable, but that is not an issue here. So that's a piece of very good news. I, um, agree uh, with Peter very much on uh, on the overall quality of the play. I think it's got a lot of intelligence and a lot of heart, but then there's a lot of sloppiness in it, too. Uh, 
And some of it seems to be in the writing itself and some in the direction. Uh, I'll cite two moments. Uh, by the way, the director is Daniel Alkin. The very first thing we see when the lights come up at the start of the play is that Stocker Channing, uh, as Kristen, is seated in a chair uh, with her face down, uh, looking either t- very tired or very depressed. And a few feet away from her are standing uh, one of her sons, uh, that would be Peter, and his girlfriend, Trudy Talene Monahan, uh, and they have a luggage with them. So they have clearly they have just entered uh, Kristen's home in in London or somewhere in England, and they. Uh, but somehow she, we're led to uh, we're supposed to think that Kristen has not heard or seen them enter, and I just thought that seemed so unrealistic that uh, because they would have had to come in through the door, which is in the next room. And then they would have had to cart their luggage into the, into the main room where Kristen is sitting without her noticing it. So that was fairly small, but, but rather odd in terms of direction. I thought then I noticed um, there were many, many places where actors were delivering their lines straight out to the audience when they were, uh, I think, uh, more eye contact with the person they were talking to would have been really preferred, especially when we're having intense conversations about highly emotional issues. Um, and then there was uh, at the start of Act Two, that's craziest scene. This is the first time we see you, Dancy, as Simon. Um, and what has happened is he has injured his hand, and Kristen is helping him. Uh, she's got a first aid kit, and she's uh, dealing with his injured hand. But the lighting is so dark for that scene that it was it just took me out of it for the whole scene because why would she be you know working uh, to bandage and 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 sew up or whatever his hand in darkness and i i guess it was done because it fit the mood of the scene very much but it it just was so unrealistic that it completely took me out of it uh, and what else did i think um the uh, I, I was struck by the fact that there is a slight overlap uh, in the theme of this play and the play Other Desert Cities by John Robin Bates. Uh, in that play, what we have is a, an adult woman who has written a book that uh, puts her parents and her family under the microscope and uh, creates conflict among them. Here we have uh, the pretty much sort of the opposite situation, as Peter explained. Kristen has written a memoir. It's called a memoir, or uh, they call it a memoir at one point. I think at another point they call it an autobiography, in which she does not even mention uh, her two sons. And her argument is that it's about the book is about her work, hmm? uh, not her personal life. But it, you know, fine. But if that's true, then you probably shouldn't call it a memoir. Uh, and anyway, that's that's a, a source of great conflict between everyone on stage. Uh, I thought uh, there was a lot of good writing, but there was other sections of it that seemed extremely schematic. Um, but the acting is, you know, as usual, very good across the board. In addition to Stocker Channing as Kristen, 
uh, you dance, yes, Peter and Simon. Um, and aren't those both names of apostles, by the way? Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's uh, significant. Um, Trudy is Taylene Monahan, as I said. Uh, Claire is, all right, now I'm going to have to pronounce it. Megalyn yeah. Uh And then John Tillinger plays, uh, his character's name is Hugh. Uh, so uh, I think that with some better direction, I, I would have liked to play more. And also I, uh, I thought that the ending was unresolved in, and it's not, there's nothing wrong with having an unresolved ending for a play like this, but the way that it was done, it seemed like I wanted a little bit more. Uh, and those are basically my thoughts on it. So, um, uh, I'm, uh, I gave up on the writing of the, of the show. <laughs> Uh, just a couple of scenes in, I, I felt like there was so many holes that you, you, both of you have outlined right away that were just unrealistic. And I chalked this up to being an opportunity to see some great talent on stage, which I, I tremendously appreciated, uh, Stocker, Channing, and the rest of the, and the rest of the cast. And some of the moments in it were really good, uh, and, it really it felt like a missed opportunity for for me the uh the Trudy character really grated on me and annoyed me uh mm. and and it you know as you get through the towards the end of the play it becomes uh evident uh more and more obvious that she's going to say something substantial towards the end and i don't know if this was a journey of the writing or a journey of the direction or a journey of the actor to uh, to go from this tremendously annoying character at the beginning to somebody who has got something worthwhile to say at the end. Um, Peter brought up the light bulb thing, which I had noted as well. And if mm. they had somebody of Danny DeVito's stature in that role, would that have been more funny? You know, <laughs> because mm. he's he dance, he's pretty tall. Uh, <laughs> and changing changing the light bulb, uh, might you know, might have been something different if it weren't Hugh Dancy in there. Uh, and I think that this is a very hard ticket to get because of the cast. Uh, and I don't see this having a future on Broadway or anything else, but, mm. you know, go see it for the cast. It's, it's really good. And I'm interested to see, um, you know, the next works of Alexi, Alexi K. Campbell. Uh, but this is not, you know, I, I think this is the end of the end of the road for, uh, Apologia. Yeah, you know, and I, I also wanted to mention the playwright really stacked the deck against Kristen. She says the most horrible things yeah. to the the fiancé of Peter and the girlfriend of Simon. I mean, these people are guests in her home for her birthday party. And, I, you know, I understand the point uh, needs to be made that she's a difficult woman, but I, I think he, that the playwright really went overboard in that regard. Hmm. So yeah, again, it uh, somebody uh, this played in London before it came uh, mm-hmm. came to New York, and so mm-hmm. certainly they had lots of time to work on this. Uh, uh, I don't know. Did uh, Daniel Auken also direct it in London? I, I I think that he did. I'm not positive. About I would that. I would assume he did. So good uh, question. Yeah, and then what did they do before the London production? Did they have some sort of workshop of it or something like that? Because Certainly, there are long-term structural flaws that 
didn't seem to be happening just here in New York, although I didn't see the London production. So, you know, it might have been different there. You know, even if the playwright didn't want to write the fact uh, that I brought up about uh, the morning after, after the yeah. atrocity, mm-hmm. um, that the the perpetrator didn't seem guilty and uh, the victim didn't seem to have hard feelings. Even if that's not in the writing, I think that the the director had a responsibility to do the subtext there and, uh, mm. even, you know, and just have those attitudes portrayed um, because it really is – you agree, I assume, that it was quite an incident that happened at dinner, right? Mm. Huh. Sure. Yeah. All right. So under those circumstances, that is not easily forgiven. You know, in general, it seems to me that we're seeing a lot of this lately, uh, plays that have a lot of worth in them, but also are very sloppy. Uh, I I would describe Bernhard Hamlet that way, too. Uh, And there are several other examples I could note. Uh, It's almost as if um, there's – the theaters are desperate for product, and so sometimes they take works that really are not finished. Um, I'm sure that that happens sometimes, and maybe – some of us would think that this is a case where that is true. And again, uh, if you didn't have a Stockard Channing and a Hugh Dancy in this production, would this have mm-hmm. ever been on the radar screen of Roundabout Theater Company? No. Uh, yeah, and, you know, that's, this is really a, uh, an, an opportunity to see them uh, and, the, and the other members of the cast. But certainly they, they're, they're not going to take a, a chance on... Uh, on uh, a a stage full of people who are not going to sell tickets just based upon their name and not the product as well, mm-hmm. and then then they have to really work on the product. You know, we we've seen that in you know uh, the Hamiltons and the Dear Evan Hansons, where yes, very yes. very talented uh, people were on the stage, but they were not household names uh, before the productions opened. You know, Ben Platt wasn't selling tickets before the before no. Dear Evan Hansen opened, and Lin Manuel Miranda, well beloved and well known within the Broadway community. You know, you know, five miles outside of Manhattan, you're not going to have anybody who knows who he is. And now, these are two of the most sought after tickets on Broadway. And in and, both and of those cases, <laughs> yeah. And what were you both- saying, Michael? Well, and in both of those cases, uh, we it seems that significant work was done. Uh, over the course of the production process. Uh, so that uh, – and I don't think that's a, a coincidence that that's helped both of those shows to be to be so embraced by the public. Sure. Yeah, to be uh, yeah. Fair, for all we know, uh, this play, <laughs> Apologia, could have gone through you know, 704 uh, drafts and sure. um, you know, sure. we don't know. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move forward into our next review. Uh, Michael and Peter got a chance to see the lifespan of the f- – Lifespan of a fact, not the fact, the lifespan of a fact at Studio 54. Uh, so, Michael, why don't you start us off with lifespan? Well, this is based uh, quite closely on a true story of, about uh, a uh, article that was written by a fellow named John Degata uh, about a teenager who commits suicide in Las Vegas by jumping off a, a high building. Uh, and he has been working on this uh, very lengthy uh, probing piece about this incident in order to, I guess, make larger sociological points and points about 
the world in which we live. Uh, it's it's a 15-page essay, I believe we're told at one point. Uh, and uh, this – what happens in the play is that uh, the publisher of a magazine or, or the editor – I'm so sorry, I forget her title – Emily Penrose, played by Cherry Jones, she wants to publish this piece, but she's concerned about the facts in it because uh, – the author, John DeGatta, played by Bobby Cannavale, has apparently a reputation for not <laughs> sticking to the facts. And Emily is very concerned about that. So she hires this young, uh, very young, new uh, go-getter type fellow named Jim Fingal, who, uh, again, is he is also a, a true a real-life person, still very much alive, uh, played by Daniel Radcliffe. To work uh, on the fact checking of this this lengthy piece, um, and so uh, at first Jim works on his own, but then eventually he goes to visit John, and they butt horns uh, for a while, and then they start to to uh, work on the piece. But uh, Emily comes to sort of referee; <laughs> she she arrives to re referee the interaction between these two guys because there's a lot of disagreements and conflict. And um, I would say this is a, a very good play, uh, much better than I expected. Um, about a, a really really interesting subject. I thought only in the very last. The very last moments did it somewhat fizzle out. But until then, uh, this play by Jeremy Carrigan and David Murrell and Gordon Farrell, that's how it's billed, based on the essay slash book by John DeGatta and Jim Fingal. Uh, the uh, that's the that's the writing team <laughs> of this play. So basically it's five people, uh, if you look at it that way. And, uh, uh you know, be, having been a journalist, uh, and, and continuing to be to some extent, I, I certainly find the general point here about fact checking and how important it is or is and how much license an author can take with the truth in order to have a better written piece. These are all very, very interesting matters. And I thought, that, as I say, until the, the just the very, very end, I thought it really hung together well, held the, haughty, the audience's interest. Um, it's, uh, I believe it was uh, an hour and a half, uh, roughly, you know, with no intermission. The acting, as you might expect from uh, Cherry Jones and Bobby Cannavale and Daniel Radcliffe, is superb. I would say this is Daniel Radcliffe's best work so far that I've seen on stage. I uh, did not like him at all in how to succeed i uh, i thought he missed almost every laugh in in the role of j pierpont finch i thought he did some good work in equus but there are parts of it that he really just was not up to the task uh but i hasten to add that in both of those cases i think very poor direction was partly uh partly at fault i did enjoy daniel very much in the cripple of inishman and here i think he's just great under the direction of lee silverman as jim fingal very charming, uh, 
very, very uh, wonderfully comic portrayal of this kind of nerdy guy who's just obsessed with the minutia of the the facts in this article, or or you know if they're facts or if they're not facts. That's what he's trying to get at. Um, so yeah, he he really is doing a wonderful job, and I think his fans will be very very pleased. His character is quite different from Harry. Potter, but yeah. uh, but uh, but it, it does fit him and his skill set very well. And once again, I'm incredibly impressed by the uh, excellence of his American accent. Uh, I don't think it would ever occur to me that he was British if I only saw him in this play. Um, so very very um, very very worthy evening in the theater all around and I highly recommend it and P.S. Uh, I did not get a press, press ticket for this show I had to buy my ticket so uh, I but I liked it anyway <laughs> uh, and uh, you know uh, I uh, I just thought I would mention that because I didn't want to miss it it sounded like a really it was going to be if if the play was good which it turned out to be i wanted to see the interplay between radcliffe and jones and Cannavale, and it was that was really uh something to see okay peter what did you think well um i'm very glad that um the old practice of seeing a show and going right back to the office and writing a review uh, is long past because sometimes we need a night's sleep to not only calm down, but also to think if there's another facet to the play that we may have missed. So I came out of this play very angry and thinking there was no play here at all because, mm. because my God, I, you know, I, where's the argument here? Here's this guy fabricating all these uh, <laughs> phrases. At one point he even says, I used three, um, 34 rather than 31 because 34 sounds better. And when the reader in his head hears the word 34, it sounds better than 31. Good Lord. I mean, I was apoplectic here watching this. Where is the show here? I mean, there's no argument. Facts have to be reported. Uh, I'm going to get personal here and say that I remember when I was at the Star Ledger, somebody mentioned that uh, I had done an interview and somebody said um, I went to school at – I forget the name of the school. So I left it at that. And when I came back to the office, I looked up where that school was. Well, there was one in Newark and there was one in Hillside, two different places. Wouldn't you know it was Martin Luther King Day. I couldn't find out uh, (laughs) which school it was. I went crazy. I, I spent five hours before I found which school it was. Uh, because there was nobody to track down, but eventually I got in touch with somebody and uh, and found out that indeed it was Hillside. My point is I didn't begrudge the five hours at all. It had to be done. The fact had to be right. So I thought there was no play here. And then after a night's sleep, I started thinking, is this play telling us indeed that this is the way things are now? I, I anticipate that every review of this play will include that well-worn phrase that we hear too often these days, fake news. <laughs> and um, so I think that this play will drive people crazy for anyone who cares the least bit about journalism and standards. Uh, but for those who believe the media is the enemy of the people, this play will convince them that once again, they are never wrong. I do believe this will be Donald Trump's favorite play of all time if he went to the theater, because yeah. it does indicate that um, people uh, in the in the 
this business uh, just say what they feel like, and that's all there is. And I do believe that um, even if he doesn't go to the play, his ever-trusting, never-doubting base, if they became theatergoers, uh, that this farce would run now and forever. So, um, yes, it's uh, very well performed, of course. Uh, Cherry Jones is one of our um, favorite people, and it's nice to have her back after almost five years. Um, it has been that long since we've seen mm. her on stage virtually. And um, she's really marvelous in the uh, opening scene where she's uh, telling the young intern that he better get his facts correct and he's got to get it done by um, Monday. That's it. That's all there is to it. It's got to be done by Monday. But he starts detailing some of the facts of the case. And when we're in Las Vegas, and so there's a lot of stuff about um, Sin uh, City and uh, all the things that go on there. And you can tell that she's so disgusted when he brings up some um, semi-pornographic fact. Uh, She turns away. She just wishes that he didn't have to go into that at this point in time. Well, if he's got to get it done by Monday, why is he going to a wedding in Las Vegas that suddenly turns out to be oh so coincidental that um, this struck me as really bizarre, but I, I understand the reason why. Sets are expensive, and so he goes to uh, visit um, uh, Mr. Degada in his home. Uh, the fact that Mr. Degada lets him in and lets him sleep on his couch is bizarre to me, too. But <laughs> the fact that uh, he mentions that he had always planned to go to a wedding that weekend is a little bizarre to me, too. And then even more bizarre is when they don't seem to be getting along because Degada totally, without any apology whatsoever, totally believes he's in the right to make up things just to make the story more interesting. He says... Um, that he's not a journalist, you know, that that isn't what he does. Um, he makes that point very specifically. I am not a journalist. I'm an essayist. No, what he is is a short story writer. That's what mm-hmm. he's doing. He's writing a short story uh, because <laughs> he's putting in all these details. It's supposed to be about a guy named uh, Levi Presley. Well, then make the story about Preston Levi, you know, and, and do have a ball, you know, tell what you think might have happened, why he did throw himself off this building uh, and commit suicide. That's fine. You know, but if you're supposed to be doing what really happened in that day, you don't do this at all. Well, anyway, they're fighting. So what does Cherry Jones do? She comes out to Las Vegas. I don't believe this would happen. I don't believe an editor-in-chief <laughs> would go to Las Vegas. I, uh, if anything, you guys got to come here. I mean, it just – but again, you know, uh, sets are expensive and what are you going to do? You know, so um, so that's a big problem uh, in the play as well. But I'm still wondering if indeed the whole point of it is people get used to it. You are going to be reading – so-called journalism and it's not journalism at all so i guess i have to give a slight benefit of the doubt here that this is what the play means and um but if it doesn't it's a horrible play but you know but doesn't this go back decades and probably centuries i'm, I'm thinking of truman capote in cold blood i thought of that too the non-fiction novel Indeed. You know, that's what that was called at the time. Mm-hmm. I remember that vividly. But at least he gave it a title uh, right. that included – I mean that sounds oxymoronic, I'll grant you, um, nonfiction novel. But still, um, I think what he was doing was admitting that he was doing the best he could with the facts and gave his own interpretation of them. This mm-hmm. guy is, is in, uh, letting everybody believe that these are the facts. You know, right. so uh, he doesn't call it a nonfiction essay. Um, he 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 really believes that um, he's um, 
giving something that is nonfiction, and um, it's it's. But really, it's true. Uh, I have to say that the Truman Capote in Cold Blood thing uh, did occur to me. All right. So that's the lifespan of a fact. It's at Studio 54 through January 13th. Um, limited run. They doesn't seem like they are going to be able to extend because they have um, what do they have behind it. Uh, they have a Studio 54 musical. It's me, Kate. Of, it's me, Kate. It's me, Kate. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I kept on thinking it was uh, something else, but it, it's absolutely Kiss Me, Kate. So. Yeah. Um, so we'll have to see what happens there. Matt Temanini has uh, supposed that uh, that um, beautiful, uh, which is also at the Stephen Sondheim Theater, owned by studio, uh, by Roundabout Theater Company. If if uh, beautiful were to close and Kiss Me Kate goes into the Sondheim, lifespan of a fact could extend or something. But there's all sorts of lots and lots of productions circling Broadway right now. We're looking for a theater. So uh, I don't think that lifespan of a fact is going to extend, which throws into play. Um, will lifespan of a fact be remembered during the Tony Awards? And Yeah, that is a good question. And Daniel Radcliffe has been shunned by the Tony Awards a number of times. A number of times. Uh, a number three. of times. Yeah. And so uh, is this his third or his fourth appearance on Broadway, I think? Well, so, fourth. 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 Well, well uh, Cripple of Inishman was off Broadway. No, no, no. They, they were on Broadway. They were I, full, oh, I'm uh, sorry. Equus, <laughs> How to Succeed, Cripple of Inishman, Lifespan of a Fact. Yeah, yeah I've just pulled it up. It so, wasn't yeah. up. It was an off-Broadway production of Cripple of Inishman. I think that's what you're thinking. It was at yes. the Atlantic, yeah. but um, but this uh, did so. So really, and you got to give them credit. You know, I mean, a lot of people would have said, "Hey, Broadway doesn't care about me. I can make a fortune in movies. I don't need to make another movie for the rest of my life with the money I have." The fact that he still wants to do it is really quite wonderful. And not picking easy things. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah. And and on that note, I have to mention, I was in the second to last row uh, of the balcony or the rear mez uh, for Life's Men of a Fact at Studio 54. And a whole bunch of uh, uh, young people came in just before and sat in front of me and they had all lots of energy and they were talking a lot before the uh-huh. show. And I thought, oh, this is going to be uh-huh. maybe a problem. Um uh, Daniel Radcliffe is revealed as soon as the lights go up. He's on stage with Cherry Jones. Uh, he did get a huge round of applause and some whoops, and I'm like, oh, my God. But I have to say, those kids, they were – after that, they were completely wrapped and quiet and paying full attention to the show. So uh, I'm really glad. I was really proud of them for that. Frankly, when uh, the lights went up in my performance and people applauded, there weren't whoops, but there was uh, certainly applause. I was wondering for whom they were applauding, because after all, Cherry Jones is no slouch either. Uh, So uh, (laughs) I'd like to think that uh, a lot of that applause, um, if not the majority of it, was for her. But there were also like, uh, you know, when the lights went up in the beginning, some guy in the audience yelled, Harry, you know. Oh, really? (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) there was – that's why I was afraid, but yeah, it who, turned out fine. Really. Maybe Harry Styles was there. <laughs> that must be it. And so uh, I, uh, tangentially, I'm not sure we can assign bad behavior to uh, to millennials anymore. Uh, I was at a I was at a, a, a wedding yesterday on Saturday, uh, and um, 
this was a millennial wedding, uh, and there were a couple of hundred people there. And the only people, uh, you know, during the service in the Catholic Church, the only people with their iPhones out and taking videos were people that were 60 years old and above. And all the millennials were not staring down at the screens. They were perfectly engaged in the in the uh, ceremony. So, and I and I noted this. I was like, I can't because people standing in the in the front couple of rows with iPhones standing up there, you can't see the ceremony because they're <laughs> videoing. All you see is somebody with an iPhone in front of you. So uh, I, I feel as though that uh, hopefully we have good people coming up through the ranks in the millennials that will have appropriate behavior at the theater. <laughs> so, Peter, you got over to the village school to see a fringe show called One Christmas Eve. And um, you said that this is one to be watched out for. So let's talk about it. Yeah, uh, obviously it's closed. These fringe shows don't run very long. But I want to. Well, let me interrupt on. you for a second. They have yeah. one show left on Wednesday the twenty fourth. Do so they? they got, oh, good. They have All one right. show Wednesday the twenty fourth at seven p.m. I, I apologize. I really thought that uh, it was gone. Uh, so, yeah, I think anybody who um, likes Almost Maine, and Lord knows many people do because it sure. is one of the most popular produced shows in uh, community theater and high school theater, I think you're going to uh, really appreciate One Christmas Eve, which is sort of a variation on Almost Maine, even to the point of which the first play – uh, that you see, um, and almost made, by the way, in case you don't know, is a, a series of sketches. Uh, and in it, the first sketch winds up being important for the last sketch. Well, here too. Now, this is written um, not by one person, as Almost Maine is, but uh, by a whole group of um, writers. And everyone did a fine job in um, finding something about Christmas Eve that was worth talking about. So the first one by Lynn Halliday is about kids who steal a baby Jesus from a mall. And um, I have to say that uh, it has a nice twist that you don't expect to have happen, but I'll leave it at that. The second one is called Home for the Holidays, and it's by Arlene Hutton, and it's about a guy who uh, is very much into profit, and um, his former girlfriend, who's, uh, let's say, a non-profit liberal, so um, we're going to see what's going to happen there, um, and it, uh, it, it, it involves getting an engagement ring, and I think that's uh, pretty good as well. We also have one in which uh, we find out the people who work at a mall, certainly don't have a good time at Christmas, uh, which you would expect. But uh, um, this uh, happens at a sporting goods store. And James Heineman, who has Popcorn Falls off Broadway, that big audience-pleasing hit, um, did it here, and um, he did a very nice job with uh, showing that. Then, um, you know, there are little holiday shows that show up at uh, at malls that people have to do. And uh, we, we hear from a few actors there who uh, have to go on five times between 11 o'clock in the morning and 7 o'clock at night doing a show that they really don't believe in. But you do find out. Uh, even though the two actors even have a tendency to sabotage it, that the show must go on. And what's really nice is you really find out that this cast is really a family. And um, I think that does happen. And um, I I think it was very skillful to do that. So um, then uh, we have um, Crabe. This is a tough name. Pospisil. 
Um, I hope I get it right, um, uh, which is a new uh, take on a Christmas carol that's very, very sharp. And uh, Lord knows there have been uh, so many takes on a Christmas carol. I've even written one. But um, this one, I think, is uh, very special. And I don't want to give away what happens since we have a performance on October 24th. So um, a very poignant uh, plea, a piece by Arlene Hutton. Um, we need a little Christmas, um, and we know what the inspiration for that is. But it's a mother and daughter searching uh, for uh, the perfect sweater. And the daughter is a college freshman, and um, she's really resenting this Christmas because her parents got divorced. And what we have here is a clerk who says, uh, can I help you? And as it turns out, that clerk will help far more than we um, might imagine. And that's what's really wonderful about it, you know, because we always think, can I help you? Mean what's the price? You know, what's this made of? Uh, will it be on sale next week? No, he helps in a very, very different way. And I think that's really quite wonderful. So um, there's also a, 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 <laughs> a situation that you don't hear about too much, but um, a widower found out uh, that his wife left a list saying, here's the gifts to get to s for someone after I'm gone. Um, ostensibly, I guess, because uh, the husband um, isn't good at picking out gifts. So she gives a whole list of gifts that have to be followed. And how many years will this go on? Um, should the husband get over this and uh, start living his own life and making his own decisions? So that's... Uh, that's pretty um, potent stuff. And um, that one was written by Lynn Halliday as well. Um, Craig, again, uh, comes up with one uh, where um, a shopper wants to buy a dress for her little uh, daughter. You know, the kids, uh, considering the dress they're looking at is probably about a four or five year old kid, but it's too expensive. And where it goes from there, I dare say nobody would guess. And um, it becomes quite surprising. Um, we also have one uh, where a, a guy playing Santa and a person playing an elf um, commiserate on what their life is like. And uh, so it goes on from there. And little sketches, some funny, some poignant, some sharp. Uh, never does the writing flag, I think. And um, I guess it's it's a good idea, even though, as I say, Almost Maine was written by one person, to get a group of people who are talented, and Lord know these people are. Speaking of talent, what a nice cast. Um, six people. I, I did, uh, To my knowledge, I didn't know any of them. Aaron McMillan, Alexandra Bonesho, Leighton Samuels, Adrian Paquin, Darcy Siciliano, and James Taylor Odom. Um, wonderful performers doing different roles. And as I mentioned earlier um, uh, in uh, Apologia, you, know, you don't know that um, it's the same person playing the part. That occasionally hap happened here, that uh, people became unrecognizable. Not always, of course, but occasionally. And uh, so I, I do believe if you're looking for something uh, for Christmas, I guess a little um, late this year perhaps, but find out how to get this show, because I do believe that it's going to have a tremendous future, as almost Maine has had. Wow, that's uh, that's great. I have to see if I can get there Wednesday, October 24th right. for the last performance. <laughs> this is wonderful. Uh, they have a very nice website, onechristmaseve.com. Uh, and uh, so, all right. Michael, 
you and I got a chance to see uh, Girl from the North Country down at the public at the Newman Theater. Peter talked about it a few weeks ago. Why don't you give us a reminder of what the show is and what you thought about it? Yeah, I I, I won't say much because I guess I guess I'm in the minority. Sometimes it's really hard to tell <laughs> about that. But this uh, show was written and directed by Connor. Connor McPherson uh, with music and lyrics by Bob Dylan. It it takes a bunch of songs by Dylan and incorporates them into an original story about uh, a community in Duluth, Minnesota during the the Depression. And uh, I remember uh, Peter talking about Duluth. We had a little discussion about that uh, last week, I guess. But I thought, uh, as opposed to apparently the general of consensus, I thought that this book that Connor McPherson wrote around these songs was really very, very poorly written. I found it um, melodramatic and schematic and clunky, uh, and I thought it was based on uh, just very obvious stereotypes and had just about everything wrong with it that a book for a musical could have. I uh, I have to say, so many of the lines to me were so poorly written that I actually was having some kind of involuntary responses in my seat. And I really was trying not to, but I, you know, was making noises like, oh, I, I just... Can, and, and very, very surprising to me because Connor McPherson has written several other plays uh, that I have seen and enjoyed, most notably The Weir and Shining City. So I if uh, I didn't know going into it that he had that it was the same author of all these three things, I, I, I would never, ever have guessed it. I just did not respond to this at all. And um, as far as Mr. McPherson's direction, I didn't like that either. I thought there were huge problems, including that thing that always drives me up a wall. People are having, um, and I, you know, I think I mentioned this with, uh, with Apologia also there, there are scenes in this where people are having very, very intense, important discussions about very, very important matters, uh, things that affect their lives greatly. And they're, while they are performing menial tasks like setting a table and they don't stop setting the table to look the other person in the eye and have the discussion. They just keep setting the table while they have the discussion. It strikes me as so false. And and it's an example of a director uh, thinking, well, we have to have some movement on stage and we have to keep people busy. And I, I think directors, when they do something like that, they think it makes it look more natural, but I ha- I think it's counterproductive and has absolutely the opposite effect. There are excellent, excellent people in this cast, uh, and a lot of them. Uh, Mayor Winningham, Mark Kudish, Luba Mason, David Pichu. Uh, so I always enjoy see- seeing those people, people of that caliber on stage. But uh, this show completely missed the boat for me. And in my opinion, the raves are, are just unjustified and inexplicable. So um, I, I find a, uh, a lot of parallels between Apologia and uh, Girl from the North Country in the fact that mm-hmm. uh, I feel as though the, the cast saves the show. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that I can't disagree with some of the uh, observations about the book. Uh, I thought the book was kind of all over the place, and and I kept on thinking to myself um, of it being sort of uh, like uh, Michael John Lacusa Wild Party, uh, in the fact that there are so many little stories that are being pulled together here of each of the people in this in this boarding house in Girl from the North Country that are being told here and the tragedies that befall the family uh and and the and the people that are also staying in in this boarding house um i i'm not sure how some of the Dylan music was used to move the story forward huh. uh uh it's really uh, not re- used to move the story forward it's just uh, it, to create mood i thought I, people just walk out yeah. and start singing things that have some vague mood connection to what's happening and then the the use of the stand uh the standalone microphones uh you know, sometimes they were used to denote that this was a narrator talking about the piece from outside the piece, and other times it seemed like they were characters in the store using the microphones. And, uh, you know, it just was inconsistent for me, but I really loved some of the arrangements of the of the Dylan music, or the rearrangements, and I was like, uh, you know... I, I don't call myself a, a huge Dylan fan, but some of these things were just unbelievably beautiful. And I think it was because of the talent of the cast that really made me more interested in the show than maybe the actual story and the direction that was on, uh, you know, on a page. Right. Uh, again, this is a very, very popular hard to get ticket and there are lots of talk of uh of moving this to a broadway stage i'm not sure that would be a good Mm. financial uh decision to move this to a broadway stage i I think that it definitely will have some audience but uh, a commercial audience to make money on this i I don't think so Mm. All right, so uh, let's move forward into the next thing. Um, Peter, you saw Midnight at the Never Get at the York Theatre Company, so tell us about that. Well, this is uh, a two-character musical. Um, well, <laughs> actually it isn't, but uh, but that's another story, and I'm going to be uh, purposely vague about that. But anyway, uh, a writer named Mark Sonneblick did book, music, and lyrics, which is a very tough thing to do, and um, I think did a very fine job, especially with the music. Uh, this takes place in the late 50s, early 60s, and boy, does he understand uh, the great American songbook style. And uh, his songs really are in that mode, and they're terrific. I really enjoyed them. I, full of melody, um, wonderful lyrics to, to match it, so I'm really uh, on board with that. The story involves the fact that uh, this young entertainer meets an older entertainer, and they do fall in love ostensibly and um, they're both men and uh, the piano player and the composer uh, played by Jeremy Cohen is um, an old world gay. Um, some would call him an Uncle Bruce, as the term goes. You know, there's Uncle Tom. Um, well, there's Uncle Bruce uh, in the sense that uh, people who are not really fully expecting that the world is going to change and gays are going to be ex- 
accepted and the best you can hope for is to have a slow and steady wins the race type of approach while uh the other gentleman, uh, the younger man, of course, um, he's Trevor, is um, a, a little more militant. Not a lot, but more. And uh, part of the issue comes up to the fact that um, that the pianist, that's all he's called, the pianist, uh, even though he's a composer as well, has written songs where uh, the pronouns definitely refer to men when Trevor is singing. And they do have a chance to get a contract with Columbia Records, but on the the condition that the, the pronouns be changed. And so that's a bone of contention between them. So love the music, love the story, love the lyrics, love Jeremy Cohen, uh, who reminded me a bit of Gene Kelly. It's a very non-actory performance. It's a very raw performance, a very real performance, a human being performance. And, mm. um, and I bought it completely and I thought he was exceptional. So that leaves us with the actor who plays, uh, Trevor. And, um, one of the one of the best critics in town, I think, is Mark Miller. He writes for um, Talking Broadway, and uh, if you um, go to all that chat, you'll find his reviews. And I really think you should read them because he's really very sharp. And uh, what he wrote here uh, is something I agreed with entirely when he said he might tone down the character's stereotypic flailing wrists and hip shaking a tad. He keeps keeps Trevor's emotion at nine when six would do. I'll tell you what I was reminded of, and that was um, when Ben Brantley reviewed Jekyll and Hyde, he said, you can tell that Linda Etter has listened to a lot of Barbara Streisand records. <laughs> well, what you can tell about this actor is that he's watched a lot of Liza Minnelli, Minnelli videos, and I found the performance so over the top, and uh, I'm looking for a euphemism for repulsive, and I can't find it, that I came out not only hating this performance, but hating Liza Minnelli too. Uh, it, it really affected me in that way. So, um, I, and by the way, it was written for him, uh, and um, he certainly got a showcase for what he uh, he can do. And for that matter, I have to say, the audience adored him. They thought he was terrific. I don't think they thought he was ter as terrific as he thinks he's terrific, but that's another story. <laughs> so um, so anyway, um, I would really like to see this done with um, a less flamboyant, um, over-the-top actor. And I do understand that because he is more in the forefront of gay liberation, that he has to be more out there uh, than the pianist, who indeed, um, as I say, is old world. And you need that orchestration of character. I understand that. But uh, obviously there are situations where enough is enough. And um, I think this guy is so over the top that uh, he could look down and see what King Kong is doing on the <laughs> Empire State Building. <laughs> but... Just to make things interesting, late in the show, someone remarks, I won't say more, that this uh, character of Trevor is really not that good. Uh, and it comes out of nowhere. Uh, and I thought that that was extremely effective because it had never – been brought up before, and I wasn't sure if we were supposed to think he was good. So I don't know. Um, did that temper your opinion at all, Peter? Well, you know, this brings up Sally Bowles, and yes. uh, you know, <laughs> we we always hear about the fact that Sally Bowles isn't supposed to be very good, and. Um, 
<laughs> you know, I, I, God knows it's, it's, it's so horrible to criticize Harold Prince, who has um, more Tony Awards than many characters uh, on Broadway have had uh, roles. Uh, but, you know, I, I've always been surprised if Sally Bowles isn't supposed to be good, why Harold Prince didn't direct the, direct the um, customers in the Kit Kat Club to react in a way as if to say, she's no good. Mm. You, know, mm, you know, wincing, uh, looking at each other, pointing to each other and saying, uh, pointing to her and with s- confused looks on their faces. I think that would help. So um, in this case, frankly, it, it struck me a different way that um, – the, the pianist is, of course, the one who tells Trevor that he's not that good eventually. And one has to wonder if that's his way of dumping him, uh, both professionally and uh, romantically. So uh, because he didn't seem to say anything like that during uh, the entire uh, point uh, up to that point in the in the show. So so I I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure he really believes that Trevor wasn't that good. Uh, but I certainly believe that this actor playing Trevor wasn't that good. Or he could mean what he could mean and doesn't actually say is that Trevor is too gay. Yes, yes, that would be his opinion, wouldn't it, under the circumstances? That is part of the bone of contention through the show. That yes. uh, so, so I do think that's it too. So, so I, I really felt that it was a case that he didn't necessarily feel that Trevor wasn't good enough as much as he was getting rid of him. Right. Which may or may not be true. I mean, again, you know, I, uh, you talk to the authors, they might tell you something completely different. But, um, boy, I, I want to hear more Mark Sonneblick music. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, I hope it gets an album. Because um, really, for those who like uh, the Mel Torme, the Frank Sinatra, the Tony Bennett type of singing, um, this is it. And um, uh, very, very skillful indeed. And I especially want to hear more Mark Sonnenblick lyrics because I thought the lyrics were just fantastic, aren't they? You know, and, and uh, he really understands this uh, this this era. So, um, and it's very nice that somebody coming on the scene does understand this era. Yes. Okay, so that is Midnight at the Never Get at the York Theatre Company. It's playing through November 2nd, uh, so hopefully uh, we'll hear something about a uh, cast recording coming out of that. Um, next up, Michael, the ambassador to Staten Island, has uh, uh, gone over to Seaview Playwrights uh, Theater to see The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. Uh, so tell us about that, Michael. Well, first of all, I'm really glad I got to see this because I had not seen this play before. And Stephen Adley Gerges has become one of my absolute favorite playwrights. Um, signature devoted a season to him just just recently, uh, where they did Our Lady of 121st Street and Jesus Hop the A-Train. And then I think there was another play there, too. Uh, and I have seen a few others in various other productions, but never caught up with this one, which is one of Gerges's first uh, earlier works, so one of the ones that really put him on the map. And I, I won't uh, say too much because I have I just really uh, the cast was so large uh, and Mm. it was one of those wonderful situations where the director Gary Bradley got managed to get wonderful people for every single role even though these are not these are not paid actors this is community theater Uh, nobody's equity nobody's paid Uh, and it's sometimes hard with the talent pool out there to to find uh, 
good people when you in a situation like this where you do have a very large cast. But damn if he didn't do it. And uh, I could single out several people, but I want to mention someone who was completely new to me. uh, And her name is – I'm sorry. I just can't find it in the – oh, yes. uh, St. Monica played by Nicole Marinello. Now, she came out on stage, a, a very young appearing woman uh, in this very, very showy role of this uh, very colorful character, St. Monica, who speaks in street language, as do many of the other characters in this play. And there was something about her that was just so fresh and so energetic and it seemed like I was seeing raw talent here and sure enough uh, when I spoke with the director afterwards Gary Bradley I said you know everyone was great but I really have to single out Nicole Marinello Uh, and he said it was her first night on stage anywhere and I just said well I'm I'm really glad I was here at the ground floor because I think if she wants to be a professional actress she has places to go she was Really wonderful, and and I'm sure he helped Bradley. Uh, Gary Bradley must have helped her. Um, I'm sure he helped in his direction, but it's just a raw talent of someone um, really blossoming in their very first time on stage in a somewhat difficult role. So that's the kind of wonderful discovery you can make when you go see community theater, and I'm so glad I was there for it. Okay, so that is uh, uh, The Last Days of Judas Iscariot uh, at Sleeveview Playwrights Theatre, and it's through October 28th, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, they don't really have a, uh, a website that I could find, but they post all of their information and uh, photos and everything on Facebook, so I have a link back to that. Uh, Peter, to uh, wrap up the morning, we have uh, a lovely Sunday for Krevkor. Tennessee Williams play it's then at the theater at St. Clement's so what did you think about this well this is a late Tennessee Williams play uh, he started in 76 um, it got produced um, a year later and then a year after that and he revised it and he changed the title and all that goes with that the reason I want to talk about this is because uh, we have a knee-jerk reaction to think that uh Tennessee Williams was fabulous in the late 40s and uh, early 50s, and then the 60s, his star began to fall, and by the 70s, uh, things were really tough. I remember being at the closing performance of the Red Devil Battery Sign in Boston uh, in 74, 75, something like that. It was the final performance. It was closing out of town. Anthony Quinn was in it, and I remember how horrible it was for the first half hour, and then the set got stuck, and I thought, oh, please, please, let them knock continue and give me my money back. I mean, that'd be great. Well, they fixed it and I had to sit there for the whole thing. So uh, many people do feel that um, somewhere along the line, he lost his talent. This play is an excellent rebuttal that he did not. Um, And God bless La Femme Theatre Productions for bringing it to St. Clement's Theatre. Christine Nielsen's in it. um, And you may know her for her, um, well, slightly over the top performances. She does have a bag of tricks and they're used here too. But when she has to be tender, and she does, she's very, very good. She has a roommate, and the roommate is played by Jean Lichty, and um, they get along wonderfully. They care about each other. The thing is that um, it's a rather ramshackle place. Uh, 
And unknown to the Christine Nielsen character, what's happened is that Jean uh, has gone out looking for a better place to live. And she finds a woman who uh, indeed uh, has a nicer place. And the woman is very hoity-toity. And um, she comes to seal the deal, getting a check from um, our border here to uh, get her out of there. And she is totally disgusted and terribly condescending to Christine Nielsen's character, terribly condescending, uh, and uh, makes no bones about it. So they're not getting along at all. But the thing is, we really do see that if this woman makes the move, that indeed she's going to have a tough time with this lady. She doesn't know how lucky she is to be with somebody who genuinely cares about that. And if the furniture's a little threadbare, so what? If the the drapes don't quite match the carpet, so what? You're living with somebody who, who really, really loves you. Uh, that may not be much of an exaggeration to say loves. And uh, those feelings are very much returned. And none of this is sexual, by the way. We are really talking about great, great deep friendship of people who relate to each other. So that's really good. Now, the problem is, why does the woman want to move if, if the, she's with a person she loves and they're getting along and there's no roommate strife that you usually hear of? Well, because she's got her eye on a guy. She's a, she's a high school teacher, and the guy she has the eye on is the principal. So she really feels that um, she can't invite him over to this place. She's got to go a step up if indeed she's going to uh, wind up with this guy. And um, she's already had sex with him, which horrifies Christine Nielsen's character. And is that because she's afraid of losing her? Uh, or is she really out for her own welfare? And I do believe it's uh, out for her own welfare, much more than worrying about getting a new roommate to pay half the, the rent and the utilities and what have you. So, uh, so she's really smitten with this guy and she truly believes she's going to have a future with him. In the meantime, Christine Nielsen has a brother uh, who uh, she really wants to see hook up with, uh, with Jean Litchie's character. It would be very nice if indeed um, they could get together and she really is pushing this. So, you, so it's not a case that she wants to hold on to her roommate. Um, in fact, the fact that she wants her to be part of the family is even another validation of how much she cares about this woman. So all these complications come up and I do believe it's resolved rather realistically and rather poignantly and sadly uh, it's Tennessee Williams play. A lot of times they end very sadly, don't they? Um, this is no exception, but it's very skillful. I was very glad to see that every seat was taken at St. Clements, each and every one. Granted, it was a Friday night, but you know, and I, you and I know that um, there are many theaters that have empty seats on a Friday night. So, so under those circumstances, the word of mouth must have been very good on this, and uh, the audience really responded. It wasn't a lot of times when you laughed. There weren't a lot of times when you went, ooh, but um, the times that really counted, those things happened. So the audience was really, really listening. And I was very uh, much impressed by the woman uh, sitting next to me who uh, more and more and more leaned forward as the play went on. Mm. Uh, I fully expected the person behind to say, will you sit back? But it didn't happen maybe because he was, uh, she was uh, leaning forward too. I have no idea. But um, what a pleasure to find out there's a late Tennessee Williams play that's very, very good. Okay. 
So that is uh, great news there. We, yeah, well, uh, the reason I mentioned this, I, I should have made this clear. I'm sorry, James. I, I, I didn't mean to barge in there, but I did mean to barge in, actually. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I really mentioned this because for those people who want to do a Tennessee Williams play, uh, and uh, and it's such a terrific title, isn't it? A Lovely Sunday for Crevcore. Beautiful title. Uh, investigate this one. Yeah, I think you're going to be wonderfully surprised great roles for three women. There's a fourth woman too, but great roles for three women. And uh, I should mention that the interloper is played by Annette O'Toole superbly. Mm. superbly. Uh, so, uh, but three good roles for women, uh, community theaters out there, pay attention. Um, don't neglect this one saying, Oh, if it's a late Tennessee Williams play, it must stink. No, it does not. So uh, that's the reason I mentioned it, even though it's too late to see it. I'm sorry. I got to it so late. I'm glad I got to it at all. All right. So um, we are getting deep into our fall schedule where lots of things have uh, opened. Uh, we have a number of things that we didn't talk about this week that we'll push to next week, including the ferryman. Uh, we'll talk about ordinary days. We'll talk about uh, the winning side next week and things like that. So for right now, let's get on to wrapping up the show. Before we get to trivia, we we'll want to let you know that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. We can listen to us in many ways. Uh, so uh, aside from Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio I plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast and get Broadway Radio's podcasts. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. All right, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, last week I asked, what was the first cast album? And I repeated the words cast album to include its song's lyrics. Now, notice I didn't say original cast album, Mm. because according to Lawrence Maslon in his marvelous new book, Broadway to Main Street, which I heartily recommend, he says it was the 1943 revival cast album of a Connecticut Yankee. That's very surprising to me. Anyway, Mike Meany was the one and only listener to get it, and he claims he didn't read the book, but he just knew it. (laughs) So this week's question You may have heard the expression May-December romance, which refers to a relationship between a young person, that's the May, and an older one, that's the December. What musical that involved such a situation actually opened in May and closed in December? Okay, if you know the answer to this, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I swear, I don't rat my hair. I get ill from one cigarette. Keep your filthy paws off my silky drawers. Would you pull that crap with a net?